This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. We are in the middle of a series called Hope is Alive, and we have been journeying through Ephesians together. Uh, this little letter at the end of your Bible, uh, where a man named Paul, sitting under house arrest in Rome, under chains and uh, prison guards around him 24-7, writes to this church that he planted 10 years earlier. And he invites them in this place where this church is struggling under the weight of the culture around them and they're feeling the pressure of this new movement that is uh, going against everything that they've ever known. And he writes to encourage them and he tells them a couple of things. The first half of his letter, what he spent the last few weeks, the last two months talking about, is all about your identity. It's all about who you are in Christ. And the last few weeks have had very little to do with you whatsoever. As a matter of fact, it's had nothing to do with you. It's had everything to do with what God has done for you. And Paul did that on purpose because he did not want to start talking about your role in this, your behavior, without you first knowing your identity. Because Paul is so much more interested in identity transformation than behavior modification. Just like Jesus was on the Sermon on the Mount. It's not about you changing your behavior if your identity hasn't been changed. And so Paul deliberately opens up this letter and just paints the most vibrant, poetic descriptions of who we are because of what Jesus has done. He uses these words like you've been chosen, you've been adopted, that you've been given resurrection power, you've been given grace, you have new life, you are a temple. In these beautiful, profound terms. And we've, um, and we've slowly gone through that, and we are about to pivot this Sunday to start to talk about what do we do in response to that identity? How do we live from that space of identity? And because our behavior matters, but if you were just showed up this week, and all you start hearing about the next few weeks is your behavior changing without taking time to understand who you are in Christ. And it's actually dangerous. It's very common, and it's pretty much prevalent in every single religion. Um, and it's prevalent in our American performance-based culture. This idea that what you do makes who you are, and the message of Jesus is the exact opposite. It is who you are. And how he's made you, he's loved you, that defines you. Out of that flows our behavior. And it, and it matters, though. I think a lot of times it's easier for us to camp out on grace, to camp out on the goodness of God, the gospel, and then have uh, very little to say about our behavior. But the reality is, Jesus and the scriptures have tons to talk about how do we live in response to what he's done for us. I love how Dallas Willard puts it. His grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. Love, I mean, Dallas Willard, just legend, right? Passed away a few years ago. Brilliant philosopher, theologian, was a president of Dallas Theological Seminary, ended up being the head of philosophy for USC. 
And he talks a ton about practice and practicing the way of Jesus and how it forms us. And I just love that statement that grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. So here's the thing. If at any point in tonight's message, the next few weeks' messages, you start feeling like you have to earn your status or your identity or your love from God, then you have missed the point altogether. If you walk away from tonight feeling like you have to put in more effort, that's good. Because all of this, all of us should because of what he's done for us. But here's, here's a little litmus test. Love Henry now is another author who just writes this. You can tell if it's the voice of God if it begins with the word beloved. And tonight, as we start to talk about our actions and our choices and our behavior, it is flowing from this deep place of love that he desires us to live in that place. And Paul, in another letter that he wrote from that same prison, he says this in Galatians 5, verse 1, says, It is for freedom's sake that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. I love the wording in here because he makes it very clear. Christ set you free so that you would be free. Stop living in a way that is putting you back into bondage. So what Paul's saying is your behavior matters. But the behavior the thing he's going to talk, talk about the choices you make and the way you live, this is not to cage you or restrict you. It is to liberate you. It is to bring freedom into your life. Because it's why he went to the cross. It's why he gave you grace. Because he desperately wants you to know that. So, three things we're going to cover tonight. Uh, as we look through Ephesians chapter 4. Number one, we're going to talk about becoming new. I was going to be talking about that God has told you who you are. How do you start to live out of who you are? How do you become who God has already said that you are? The second thing we're talking about is becoming one. The very first action steps he gives in, in this church has to do with not you becoming your best you. It's you becoming one with everyone. And then lastly, we are going to be talking about becoming you. How has God uniquely wired you? And how does that play into his kingdom? So let's pray together and we'll dive into these three concepts tonight. Father, we thank you so much that you care desperately about us. So desperately about us that you would do something as radical as send your son to ransom us to have us there. Lord, you care so desperately about us that you care about our choices, our habits, our thoughts, our worldview. And Lord, we ask that we give you permission to come into that space tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's talk about becoming new. So Ephesians chapter 4, I think the references are on the screen, but we're in chapter 4 all night long. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So what, is the, what are you called to do? I love this. There's a lot of young adults in the room tonight. It's all the question all the time. What's my calling? What am I called to do? What am I supposed to do in my life? That is not what he's talking about here. Does he care about that? Absolutely. 
But the calling he's talking about right here is something that is a current that runs so much deeper than your career. It has to do with your soul. Your, your eternal person. And says that has been called adopted and chosen. It has been called a temple. It has been called righteous. And he's referring to that as, as that calling, that high calling you have received. Live a life that is worthy of that high calling. Live a life that reflects that identity that I've just spent the last three chapters laying out for you, Paul would say. Live a life that would reflect what that is. And so just, just a couple stories just to illustrate that. Um, yesterday, uh, a bunch of the guys in this church went on a backpacking trip. And, uh, which makes all of us backpackers, right? Clearly, look at me, I'm a backpacker, right? Me hanging out in REI, it was Patagonia here. I was made to be a backpacker, so I thought. So I showed up yesterday morning, and everyone looks at me, and you just, you just know that feeling, you're like, oh man, I'm totally standing out right now. Everyone kind of looks at me like, you're wearing jeans. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, we can't be. Like, is that bad? Like, well, we're hiking. And I look around and everyone's wearing shorts. And I'm like, even people probably shouldn't wear shorts. They need a tan. But I'm like, okay, I'm wearing jeans. And then I'm like, where's your hiking shoes? And I'm like, I have Chuck Taylors. What else do you need, right? Have you seen Sam Lot? Like, these are like the shoes you wear for everything. And, and my, my Chuck Taylors have like holes in them. And they're just looking at me like, we're not going to like an Urban Outfitter photo shoot. <laughs> I'm like, ouch. I'm like, I'm just here to have a good time. You know, like, just here to hide. But these look at me, and I have like my little like backpack. I'm just like calling around, like, I need a sleeping bag. I need this. I need that. I have nothing. I'm just, I'm not a backpacker. But yesterday, I was, that became who I needed to be in that moment. I suddenly all of a sudden realized that the equipping, behaviors, the house that I have did not reflect this event that I've called people to, to come to. And so, uh, I essentially became like the day-long joke. I say day because I didn't even spend the night. <laughs> I, walked, I walked back. So, it was great. They all survived, so did I. Total success. But I just realized very quickly that like, even though I backpacked, there are like backpackers, right? Like Josh Curry and like Kevin Howard. These guys like showed up and they just like have gear for themselves and everyone else. And I, they have spent years living into this thing that they love, and it shows. And I think this is kind of the same concept Paul's trying to get at here. He's like, hey, listen, you are called to this amazing, beautiful, deep, robust identity. Live like. Don't show up to the Christian faith wearing jeans and Chuck Taylors and you have to hike a mountain, right? Like, you have a higher calling that you have to live out now. And so he lays this out before them, and, and this is just, just for us to understand where he's coming from, how deep this calling is. If you skip down to verse 17 in chapter 4, he says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. This is a really peculiar verse because in the previous chapter he called them all Gentiles. So he just called them Gentiles. Then he says, now because of this calling, 
Don't live like the Gentiles do. It's like saying, hey, don't live like the Americans do. And you're like, um, I'm American? Like, how do I do that? But for Paul, what he's saying is this, this identity you've been given in Christ runs deeper than your national heritage, than your age, than your worldview, than your family. This new identity is everything. Don't live under these other things that are forming how you act and behave and think. No, no, live according to this deeper level of identity that I've placed, that Christ has placed upon you. And it's, it's amazing what happens when we begin to start understanding. Just one, just one more illustration. When I got married, I was 20 years old. Right? Just mature, wise, sophomore college, ready for marriage. Um, now, the older I get, the more young I feel. Like, the 20 years old feels. Like, wow. But when I was 20, I was, like, ready. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm good to go. I'm good to be married, you know? Jen is so lucky to have me as a husband. And, um, and so on July 29th, 2006, I became a husband of my new identity. I was a bachelor, but then a moment, I became a husband. And it didn't take me more than a couple of days to realize that although I was a husband, I did not know how to behave like one. Uh, there was this, this new way I had to live into, in order to make that up, it's just one example. We fly in from San Diego to Maui for our honeymoon, and we're like stoked, right? Like we're like, I'm 20 years old, I'm married to this babe, and then Hawaii. I'm like, how good is God in that moment? And we show up there and she's like, hey, how do we, like, like how do we get to our hotel? And all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, I should have figured that out. I'm the husband. And all of a sudden I'm like, I, I can't rent a car. I'm 20. <laughs> and she's like, you're going to say, like, you're a boy. And so like, I'm like scrambling to eventually find the shuttle going to another hotel like nearby ours. And so we totally like, just paid him just to take us to our hotel. And in this moment, I just, I just realized, I'm like, I'm a husband, but I have such a long way to go to learn what that means. And I'm so learning. I think that's what Paul is saying. He says, you're a Christian. You are made new in Christ. Live like it. Start to live like it. So he starts to break it down. It's, it's beautiful. I love... Um, one of our, our friends, Evan Wickham, who pastors a church down in San Diego, uh, puts it like this. I love how he phrases it. He says, we must choose habits that cultivate love for those things that are most valuable to God. This is how this looks like. We begin to start instituting habits in our lives that cultivate into loves for the things that matter most to God. That's what Paul's trying to get at here. So, what does he tell us to do? This is really interesting. This is kind of our second point. Becoming one. So Paul lays out, like, become who you are. Remember what you've been called to. And the very first thing he says, and this is starting in verse 2, says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. 
make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So we can kind of take it from the scripture. It seems like there's some division in this new church. And he writes and says, do you remember what God has done? Do you remember everything I just told you? The very first thing that you need to do in response to that is in love's words, be completely humble. Now that would have been a shocking statement to his original audience because that Greek word, tapenos, is this, that means humility, and how we understand humility, but in Greek culture, it was never viewed as a virtue, it was always viewed as a fault. And it was not until the writings of Paul and the way of Jesus that humility even had this, began to be viewed as a virtue. And so as they're reading this, Humility was never something you'd be like, man, I, can't, I really want to be a humble person. Not, not if you were in the Greco-Roman world. You were built and read to think that you were to be a conqueror, to dominate, to outthink, outsmart, outperform. That person sounds a little bit like Kalita. And it's the very first thing you can do, you can get to work on with your behavior, is your humility. And then he references back it's a reference to Jesus, who's the ultimate illustration and picture of what humility looks like. Be gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. I just, I love this. He says, the height of your calling should lead you to a loneliness of heart. And I think oftentimes we can understand our humility can be a way that we can judge our understanding of our identity. Well, how so? What do you, what do you mean by that? So let me explain. So the night before Jesus is crucified, he has the last supper, he has communion with his disciples, gathers them around his table, and he says in that moment, John 13, that all authority had been given to him, that everything from God had been given to him. And as he realizes it, John records that he gets up from the table, takes off his rabbinical robe, which would have represented in that culture authority and power and prestige, lays it aside, wraps a towel around his waist, which would have been the attire of a slave, and begins to start rubbing off the cake on dirt of the feet of his disciples as they sat around a U-shaped table. And as he's rubbing the dirt off, he gets to Peter, and Peter is so just cannot believe what Jesus is doing, the low status that he's just taking, that he just says, you don't wash my feet. And Jesus' response is the same response in Ephesians 1-3. He says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. So Peter is arrogant and says, like, wash my head and my hands as well. Like, just go for it. But at the end of this, I love that Jesus' response is in John chapter 13, verse 12. He says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. You can imagine every jaw on the floor. Like, what just happened? He says, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, which would have been the highest affirming, authoritarian words you would have been given a rabbi during that day. I love his response. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. You're right. I have those things. Matter of fact, I'm also God. But anyways, 
Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will, you will be blessed if you do them. So we just imagine this in this moment. The God of the universe, who governs every single galaxy, and has placed every single star, and knows every single atom and intricacy in the world, is standing in a dirty, musty room filled with men as they're eating the supper, is washing the dirt he made off the feet he designed. And he gets up and he says, you know those terms you call me, those terms of authority, says, you're right in saying those things because that's who I am. says, but do you see what I just did for you? Go do the same thing. Paul, as he writes, that is, you know how you can live out your high calling? Be completely humble, gentle, bearing with one another. I love that this is what Paul started with because this may be the hardest thing for us to do. No, no matter how long you've been following Jesus or not, this never becomes easy, which is why we always take communion. It's why we always remind ourselves of our identity. Because if we don't remind ourselves that Jesus washed our feet, we'll always have a hard time washing someone else's feet. Because what do we do, right? What do we do when that person at work comes up and like, hey, can you go wash the dishes? And then you might be like, why don't you wash the dishes? <laughs> Or when, when someone in your family comes up and says, like, hey, you do this, and then you're like, do you, like, why, do you see everything that I'm doing? I mean, we have these moments daily where we feel our dignity has been compromised because someone has failed to see how great we really are. You know what Jesus says? You think you're great? You're greater than what you think. We don't act like it. He doesn't diminish your dignity or your value. He affirms it. He says, you're amazing. You are. Go wash some feet. Act in humility. You think you deserve better? You do. As a matter of fact, you deserve so much I died on the cross for you. Why don't you go do that for someone else? This is a radical statement. Become completely humble, gentle, as I'm preaching this, I'm literally feeling the Lord remind me of moments this week where I have failed. And this has been one of those one of those weeks, like most weeks, where my life has arrived in this. I've come home and and I've, and I've leaned into my flesh and I felt aggravated and impatient, and she's. Out of our way to serve our family. And it, and it does something in you know. Her behavior reminds me of that. That's what I'm called to as well. I'm called to that. I want to be like that. Jen's dad is also one of my favorite examples of this. Jen's dad passed away a few years ago. Um, 
was uh, one of the highest ranking chaplains in all of the military. Uh, oversaw all of the military chaplains in all of Europe at the time that he died. Um, was on track to become the chief of chaplains, which is the chaplain that works in the Pentagon. The guy's a stud. Stud. And he served everyone. He had this practice when a new chaplain would show up to a base that he clearly would be overseeing. He would have the uniform on that wouldn't show his rank, and he would be there painting, doing some yard work outside the chapel, setting up some chairs. And the new chaplain, the new chaplain would walk in and just dress him ordinarily, and the next day he'd show up in the office and he realized who he had been talking to the day before and how he had been talking to him, and he just felt embarrassed. But for Jen's dad, that wasn't, that wasn't like a power thing, but he was just this who he was. He was served, hated the attention. And it's such a great, tangible, human example for me. This is, what, this is how it can look. He didn't deny his rank. He acted according to it and served everyone. And Paul says that when we do this, when you take on that attitude of humility, what happens is unity. Oneness. The problem is we all love the idea of can't we just get along and can't we be one? But really what we're saying is can't everyone just think like me? If everyone thought like me, we'd be great. Paul saying, no, it's never gonna happen. It's you. You have to change. Put yourself, disadvantage yourself with the advantage of others. Stop waiting for the opposite. And then what happens is unity starts to happen, you become one. But then he shifts gears. He doesn't just talk about like the putting off of yourself and becoming one. And almost to this point, you start to feel like you almost kind of lose kind of who you really are. Because then he reinforces that concept. I love this in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, But to each one of us, he's just talking about we're, we're becoming one. He says, But to each one of you, as individuals, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Meaning that every single one of you has been given a unique, grace means gift, a unique gifting, a unique gift, a unique wiring persona given to you by God that is unlike anybody else's. Christ designed you to be who you are. Some of you guys need to hear this tonight. You're not a mistake. Stop comparing yourself to that person or that mom or that dad, or that husband, that boss, that employer or employee. And you're just like, man, if I was more like them or that social media account, if I had more like that, you're right here. The message is no, 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 no. You have a unique wiring and gifting that God proportioned just for you. He goes on and he says, this is why it says that when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended? It's talking about Christ's humility. He ascended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And he's like, listen, you start acting in humility, what's going to happen is you're going to actually start feeling that plus life. You're going to start feeling that lift. And then he goes back and says, so Christ himself gave these are the gifts. Apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers 
to equip, let's just talk about the word equip is so beautiful. It's this medical term, Greek, it means to mend a broken bone. He gave you gifts to mend brokenness. Not to flaunt it, not to feel that you are superior, not for that to even be your identity. Your identity is in pride, not your gift. But he gave you that gift to help mend, to help bring back into alignment that which is broken. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become, he's going to say this word again, mature. So are you, are you fully forgiven and called, chosen, adopted? Yes, but there's now this maturation process where he desires you to grow into who you really are. This maturity. And he does by saying there's, there's and he gives us a list of five things. We agree that it's a test, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. I think there's going to be a graph that comes up on the screen. Let's just walk through what some of these giftings are. Um, because those are pretty uh, kind of churchy words. Right? Let's kind of unpack them a little bit. And what I want you to do is, is see if you identify with any of these. And, and what's unique about this is, is these are not, it's not an exhaustive list list of all the gifts God gives. Matter of fact, every time Paul lists spiritual gifts in the New Testament, every time, it's a different list. <laughs> every time he mentions gifts, it's a different list. So I don't think Paul's trying to say these are all of the gifts that God has. We're trying to say, if you hear some, which probably is there even something around him to mention. But these are five that he, he begins with in this letter, talking about how the church functions and grows in the church. So the first one is A, Apostles. So I want you to think about this word that, that I think is helpful is futurist. Apostle means sent one. So apostles, these are all definitions written by this physiologist named Alan Hirsch. He's this Australian guy, brilliant, looks a little bit like Albert Einstein. And he, um, I love how he defines these things. This is how he says, apostles extend the gospel as the sent ones. They ensure that the faith is transmitted from one context to another from one generation to the next. They are always thinking about the future, bridging barriers, established the church in the context, developing leaders, networks, and trans locally. So this is, this is what the apostle does. The apostle moves things forward. They're always thinking about the future. They're strategists. They're thinking about this, yeah, this, yeah, this is great, but where are we going? The church needs these. A lot of church planters are apostolic because they're thinking we need more churches. We need this kind of church. And they're reaching, striving for the future, the strategy for the future. But what happens a lot of times to people who, are, who are, have an apostolic gifting and don't have any other gifts around them is they can leave people in the dust. And they, and they forget to celebrate what God has already done because they're viewing the future so vividly. The next one is the prophet. Another way to think of this is reformers. They're not afraid to say the hard thing to bring the change that needs to happen. This Alan Hirsch defines this like this. Prophets know God's will. They're particularly attuned to God and His truth for today. They bring correction and challenge the dominant assumptions we inherit from the culture. They insist that the community obey what God has commanded. They question the status quo. Uh, the church needs prophets. And so when you think prophets, don't just think of the person who says, Thus saith the Lord. Um, those people are awesome too. But uh, prophets are people who have an ability to see things the way God sees them, and they normally are what we call justice people, black and white. 
And so when the church is failing to be the church, right? And they're failing to care of orphans or refugees. They, they fail to stand up for things like race, or stand up against things like racism, things like that. The prophets will be the ones saying, this is not right. The church needs to stand up and do this. And so they'll, they'll speak into that. And what happens is if the church doesn't have that prophetic voice, it can become apathetic. It can lean into um, a bad place. And so, but oftentimes prophets are very misunderstood because oftentimes they have to say the things that no one wants to hear. Um, but I will say this, there's a desperate need for those reformers, those prophetic people and voices in every single church, including this one. But with all of these gifts, notice we, all of them have to be operated in humility. How we bring them about. The futurist, the reformer, the prophetic, the apostolic, the teacher. All of these things have to be done with unity in mind. So, third one. The evangelist, uh, a gatherer, proclaimer. Evangelist, recruit. These infectious communicators of the gospel message recruit others to the cause. They call for a personal response to God's redemption in Christ. And also draw believers to engage the wider mission growing the church. Uh, normally evangelists end up in some sort of sales. They're just good at it. They gather people to their cause. They're just, they're like, man, I, I don't know what it is. Like, we're going bowling on Friday night. I'm going to get everyone bowling on Friday night. They've really got FOMO. They really are the people that they're really good at drawing people in, communicating truth. Um, Jen's amazing evangelist. Like some of her people in our in wedding party were people she's been like Starbucks. Like just, just strangers that become best friends. She's so good at it. And um, I think a lot of times when we hear the word evangelism, like a lot of us just start to get like cold sweats. Like, oh, I don't know. I don't do tracks. You know, I don't know what to say. Uh, that's, um, all of us are called to do the work of the evangelist, but some of us are gifted to be this way. Um, they're the people who want to stand outside church while church service is going on. Because what about the person walking with God? We need those people. This church that needs evangelists. Um, I love that we have two full services. There are hundreds of thousands of people around us who need Jesus. This is great. But the evangelists, let's continue to gather. Let's continue to reach out and say, hey, come, if you can be part of the community, do you know Jesus? Uh, fourth one. Shepherd. By the way, shepherd and pastor in the Greek is one word. There's not two different words for it. Um, I prefer shepherd. Um, to pastor. Pastor just kind of has this weird vibe to it. But shepherds, I think, really articulate it well. It says, shepherds nurture and protect. Caregivers of the community focus on the protection and spiritual maturity of God's flock. Cultivating a loving spiritual mature network of relationships, making and developing disciples, right? Who doesn't love a good shepherd? You guys know those people? Like, when you're having a bad day, you don't call that the apostle. You call the shepherd, right? Like, you call a person, just make me feel good, right? Like, those people, they just think they really care. They're not outside because they're inside probably crying with someone, praying over something in their life. But we need these people in our life. So you, can you imagine, if one of these ingredients is not active in the church, it can become very damaging and healthy. We need all of these operating and active. But I think a lot of times, at any church, we elevate one or two of these as like, these are the gifts that this church runs on, rather than saying, we need all of these. 
And can I just say, I'm not all of these. Jen is not all of these. This is why we encourage you to be an open table. If you're on other leaders, you're on other people in this church. If you if you think this church is being built around a persona, this church is going to fail. This church is built around Jesus. And he does it by equipping apostles and prophets and teachers and shepherds and evangelists to build up his church and equip them to men and put people to say, hey, you're, you're ready now. Go. Be a part of his mission. Last one is teachers. In other words, that's just observers. So don't think of teachers as someone who just gets up and lectures. Think of someone who cares about details. They want to know and they observe and they research. Teachers understand and explain communicators of God's truth and wisdom. They help others remain biblically grounded to better discern God's will. Guiding others towards wisdom, helping the community remain faithful to Christ's word and constructing a transferable doctrine. I love teachers. I get teachers. Because teachers are the person like, that's a really good sermon, but I'm not sure if I agree with that point. <laughs> they won't tell you, but they'll talk about it in the front of the way home. Uh, no, no, no. You're welcome here. Stop talking. <laughs> no, it's actually the opposite. No, no, we, we need teachers. We need observers. We need people who care about God's word, how we, about ecclesiology, how we operate as a church, about our culture, they care about our culture, what's happening. And so all of these things, like my, my prayer, see there's no, my prayer is that this would be a place where people thrive and they're not trying to be, they're not a futurist trying to be a shepherd. They're not a prophet being trying to force into a teacher role. But they can really, you know what, I'm this. I'm going to learn how to be the best version of this, the most gentle, humble, bearing with another person version of this gift that I have. And here's why. And as I read the last aspect, you can post link one, one time. If you just want to take this actual test online, if you want to like, I wonder which one I am, um, you can just take a picture of this, you guys can go take this online uh, by yourself sometime. Or you just Google Alan Hirsch, because um, that's a great resources. But let's read together Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. So, so Paul lays out this very kind of interesting thing. You want to live out your calling? Here's how you do it. Be completely humble. Gentle, bearing with one another. And as you do that, you'll become one. But don't just think you're losing yourself in the oneness of the community because you have been given a unique gift. Know what that is and use it to mend others for the acts and services that God has for them. Verse 14. Then, so if we do this, then we no longer will be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, here it is, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting living grows and builds itself up in love, and each part does its work. What a beautiful promise. And here you use that word again, mature. We're a baby church, you guys. We're literally nine months old. We're infant. The best thing that we can do is chase maturity. And then maturity happens 
when we know our identity, we start behaving and choosing habits that support that identity, we can start with humility. We can start with love. We can start to identify our unique gifting and wire and lean into that, live into that, for the sake of the body, for the sake of our city, with the purpose of what we do to mature us. Let's do this right now. Let's just pray. Let's ask God to, to help cultivate this in our church. Father God, we thank you so much that all of this that we're talking about tonight is a result of grace. But you, you've allowed us to become who we were always meant to be. Lord, I pray for every one of us that we would, we would know our worth and our dignity. We wouldn't deny it. But Lord, we would choose to recognize that value but choose to value others more highly than ourselves. Lord, I pray you help us to bear with one another. But I pray that you would help every single one of us to walk away, not in the sense of, I wish I was more like so-and-so. I wish I was more like that. Then God could use me. But I just want to speak this out prophetically. You are exactly where you need to be. Lord, thank you that you don't make mistakes when you make your people. So Lord, I pray that every one of us would just grasp that sense of, you know what, I'm this way because this is how God made me and I'm going to choose to live out my gifting and wiring and humility and love and gentleness for the sake of others. And Lord, as that happens, I pray that only we would grow as individuals, but as a community, we would grow quickly into a mature community. Lord, we love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.